All right, time for the uh, sermon, which we will be continuing our look at the two witnesses. So we're up to part four of this, which has continued from the the, the Transfiguration of Christ series. Uh, we went straight over from that to uh, the two witnesses. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 11, and we'll read from verses 7 to 10 this morning. Revelation chapter 11, verses 7 to 10, as we look a little bit more deeply into the spiritual things um, of the uh, book of Revelation and the two witnesses. So Revelation chapter 11, verse 7 says, And when they shall have finished their testimony, that's the two witnesses, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwelt upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and commit this time to him. Father, as we uh, go into this uh, sermon this morning, I do pray that you would bless me to to share the truth with my brethren here. Uh, For everyone who is listening, Lord, I pray that they'd be blessed uh, with the words that they hear. And I pray that uh, whatever truths are spoken, Lord, that we would take them uh, into our hearts and that we would live by them. We do thank you for your word. We thank you that you've, you've, uh, you've preserved it for us and we can continue to, to trust in it. And we do pray, Lord, that you would open up the eyes of our understanding this morning, that you will grant us the grace that we need, Lord, to, uh, to leave these words um, to glorify you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last week we looked at... Um, the introduction of the beast, and specifically the beast that uh, ascended from the bottomless pit. And so we looked at a few aspects last week just to introduce uh, this particular character because um, this is the, uh, the, the being that is able to kill uh, the two witnesses, even though they were able to preach unhindered for three and a half years. And the Bible says that when they finished their uh, preaching, uh, he arose from the bottomless pit and he was able to uh, kill them. So we're looking specifically at this person. And last week we discovered that the bottomless pit is a place that currently exists where disobedient angels are kept. So for those of you who weren't exactly entirely sure about how the whole system works, well, God created angels and he created mankind and then there are animals in the earth. The Bible says that a number of those angels, specifically a third of them, fell. um, And they are what are also known as demons or devils, uh, but they are still angels. And they roam about the earth and they cause all types of havoc and problems. A number of those angels, um, because they stepped, the Bible says, outside of the bounds that God had uh, provided, um, were thrown into a prison. Um, That prison is the bottomless pit. And that's where they're currently imprisoned. The rest of them are still uh, uh, flying around, including Satan, the Bible says. Satan is not in the bottomless pit. Um, and we saw last week that it, Satan is not the, the king of the, uh, the bottomless pit or the angel of the bottomless pit because he's never been there. This had to be a different being. So we looked at this particular being and we saw that his name, that, that the Bible actually gives him a name. And his name is Abaddon or Apollyon. And he has uh, been in there for quite a while. 
at least since the Apostle John recorded this book of Revelation. But sometime in the future, we don't know exactly when that time will be, during a period of seven years, um, uh, actually during the three and a half years, the last three and a half years, he will be let loose uh, along with the other uh, disobedient angels back into the earth and they will cause havoc and, and mayhem. So their release uh, will be in a world which will have all but rejected uh, God, rejected Jesus, and have chosen to go their own path and to follow a false Messiah. And the Bible says that this particular person, who is also known as the Antichrist, shall be a world leader whom people will think is Jesus Christ returned, or the as many other religions in the world um, uh, believe, their Messiah. The, this false Messiah will, will point Jesus away, uh, point people away from Jesus Christ um, to Himself, and the, instead of worshiping God, the true God of the Bible, He's going to uh, get them to worship someone who has been masquerading as God from the very beginning, and that's the devil. But what I'd like to focus on this morning is to help us to understand how this being uh, came about, where he's possibly been or probably been, and how it is that these angels do what they do and why they do what they do, and, uh, and how it is that he's going to be released and what he's going to cause in the end. So we're going to go from Genesis all the way back to Revelation, and we're going to look at the, the way in which angels have been meddling in the affairs of mankind from the very beginning and how this beast fits into that picture so if you have your bibles please turn to genesis chapter 3 genesis chapter 3 and we'll read from verses 1 to 5 now god has created the world the bible says he created it in six days uh, sat back on the seventh day had a rest and had a look at what he'd done and he said what a great job everything was perfect uh, until um, an encounter occurred um, between a serpent and Eve. And Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the, of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, that's the middle, God had said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. <clears throat> and the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Okay, so that's the encounter with the res that's the encounter between Satan and Eve concerning uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay, so there were two trees in the midst of the garden. One was a tree of life. One was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I like to I like to uh, think of Adam and Eve as two children. Um, in terms of innocence, they were perfectly innocent. All they knew to do was to was to um, uh, be around the garden and enjoy what God had given them. God only gave them one specific rule, was to not eat from a, one particular tree. And he warned them, if they eat of that tree, they were going to die. So he comes as the, the devil. And with only one rule in place, he manages to, to tempt Eve to do the exact opposite. And what I'd like to do is to see how he's meddled 
first of all, in the affairs of man and what trickery he uses to do that. So the devil has always sought to turn man away from God. The devil is a fallen angel. So within himself, he had fallen already. He'd already turned away from God. And now he was trying to have both uh, Adam and Eve, God's creation, turn away from him as well. And he's always been trying to turn men away from God and towards self-worship to get people to believe that they're somehow God uh, and they're the most important thing, which is ultimately what he desires for himself. He desires to be worshipped above all. Um, He wants to be worshipped as God by mankind. But I'd like you to take notice of his way of attack. So he comes masquerading as something that he is not normally, something that he isn't. And in this case, he's come as a serpent. A serpent was simply an animal. Uh, and because he was, it was subtle, um, he used that animal to achieve his purpose. He then questions God. He then, he, uh, then uh, he questions what God has said. In this case, he makes a statement. And he does it to cause confusion. And I'll have a look, have a look at it again at what he says. Very first up, he goes, yeah. He goes, in verse 1, Hath God said ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden didn't god say you could eat of every tree that's a lovely way to put isn't it isn't didn't god say you can you can eat of every tree of the garden well yes and no eve gave an answer and she seemed to already be confused about uh, about the statement that he made she added something that wasn't even there before. She added, well, we're not supposed to eat of, we can eat of the trees of the garden, but of that particular tree, we, we, we're not allowed to eat it and we can't even touch it. Mm. The devil played, played a bit of a trick on her. It's a bit like saying, if I came to you, those of you who live in Victoria, and I say unto you, aren't you allowed to drive at 110 kilometers an hour all over Victoria? And the answer is, well, yes, 110 is the speed limit in Victoria. But yes and no, it depends on what type of road you're on. Um, so what, the, what people then do is they say, oh, isn't that the truth? But if that's the truth, then they point you in a different direction. The devil does the same thing every day. What he, what he did with Eve... Um, was try to stir some confusion and cause doubt in Eve about what God had asked. Um, if you look at it, he does the same things to us as he, as he did with Eve right there from the beginning. Um, he tries to sow some confusion about the law. He causes some confusion about it and he, and he points to something in it that, that he tries to manipulate. And then what he does is he out, then outright denies it. And he says, well, no, it's not. That's wrong then. He denies the word that God has spoken. And then he calls God a liar. And then he goes to the next point and says that God is actually unreasonable. That God doesn't want this for your good. And then the final thing that he does. So if you notice that he starts off with a, with a question, but which is actually a statement. He then gets a response. If he sees any confusion, what he then does, he then contradicts what God has said in the midst of that confusion causing God to look as if he's unreasonable. And then he comes up with a promise. He comes up with a promise that says you'll be better off if you don't follow that rule. Um, 
And that's what he did with Eve. He actually said, well, you're not going to surely die. There's, the, there's denying what God has said. And then he says, you know what? God's unreasonable because he knows the day you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be like God's, knowing good and evil. How can't you be better off with that? Being like God, knowing good and evil. There's the promise. And the devil has played this particular game with mankind from the very beginning. He does it with every person throughout their life. And he does it very effectively with each passing generation. We would do well to remember this system of attack that he actually uses and not to be fooled by him. Almost every sin that people commit in life comes from this same mentality. I want you to think about maybe the own sins, your own sins that you may have fallen into in the past and think about how your mind actually justified for you to do those sins. And you will find that it probably follows the same path as this. If the devil had planted this system into someone's head, right, once you start this ball rolling, once you start this particular a circular uh, argument going, then the flesh, which has fallen, continues to run with it. And the devil doesn't need to be playing with you all the time. He doesn't need to be doing this to you all the time. Once you start doing it yourself, you'll start then multiplying this thing across all of God's laws and all the things that really are true and right. Let me give you an example. Um, let's think of this, the, the, an example of, uh, of aborting a baby, okay? Or really should be killing a baby as an example of this. A girl has just um, uh, spent some time with her boyfriend. They're not married um, and things get out of hand and she becomes pregnant. She's in a, a state of confusion. She's already in a state of, uh, of concern when she finds out. What's she going to say to her parents? What's she going to say to other people? What's it going to mean for her own life? The devil comes then along with as the voice of reason. He comes masquerading as something reasonable. Who only wants your good? And questions first arise about what God means about that shalt not kill. Because the first thing you, you, you do when you come to the, this thing about when this, this particular door about aborting a baby or aborting a fetus is, hang on a sec, but isn't it wrong to kill? Um, the Bible says, thou shalt not kill. God says that. Um, but then he will say, hang on a sec, does it say he shalt not, you shalt not kill everything or everyone? Well, it obviously doesn't mean animals, does it? Because God allows the killing of animals for food. So it only means people only, right? So you've gotten yourself pregnant and you're not ready for a baby. Well, the argument's going to be, well, it's not really a person, is it? You know, if it's not a person, that, that rule doesn't really apply to that. So I think you're okay because, see, one of the um, wonderful arguments that people bring up about it's okay to, uh, to kill a, an unborn child, an unborn baby, is the fact that it's not a human. It's not a person. So therefore, it's okay. In fact, a fetus is actually nothing in most, in most people's eyes. A fetus is neither an animal nor a human. It is a different type of category 
that no one really puts a category on it because you see if it's an animal then even animals have rights in this world uh, if it's a human it definitely has rights but so what they do is they leave it in a separate category all of its own and make sure that it's um it's in that nether region that twilight zone so then people can take advantage of it um, and so then the the devil will come along and say hang on a sec if you don't if you don't uh, dispose of this baby, um, your life is going to be ruined. This guy that you were with doesn't really love you anyway. You don't want to even want to be with him anyway. How are you going to explain it to everyone around you? Think about it. You're going to be so much better off if you just get rid of it. And by the way, so will the baby. You won't be able to give the life it deserves. Have you ever heard that argument? It deserves a good life and you can't give it that life. So it's better if you get rid of it altogether because you can't give it what it deserves. And so the devil is ingeniously, or has ingeniously convinced much of the world that it's better to kill a baby than it is to allow it to live. It's better... To kill a baby which doesn't have a status as a human because it doesn't break the rules of God. And that you'd be better off if you did it. So there you have it. There's the masquerade, that it's good, voice of reason, the confusing statements, the lies, and finally the false promises. False promises that you're doing the right thing and that you'll be much better off if you do it. The devil plays the same games with most sins, if not all of them. When people think about violence, the devil gives them excuses on why they should be violent. On sexual perversion outside of monogamous marriage. Of hatred of others. Of racism. Of envy. Of jealousy. Of theft. Every rule that God has given us, every command that God says, this shall, don't do this, people find a convenient reason to do it. And it normally follows this particular pattern. So there is a reason that Jesus directly refuted the temptations of the devil um, while he was in the wilderness with the word of God. Because he knew the word of God is the weapon which God has given to us to defend ourselves against these types of attacks. But you need to know how to use it. You need to know it and how to use it. You want to defeat the temptations of the devil? Then know the word of God and learn how to use it for the weapon that it is. It's so important that we know how to handle the word of God properly. Um, it's that, that particular thought is repeated many, many times in the Bible. Learn how to handle it properly, how to rightly divide it, not to misuse it. There are plenty of people that misuse the word of God and they cause a lot of damage with it. But the Bible tells us and the Lord tells us and expects us to use the word properly because if it's used properly, it's very effective against the attacks of the devil. So from the very beginning, the devil has interfered with man and has, has found his weakness and has manipulated that weakness and subverted 
the laws of God and turn people away from God, making them or causing them to believe that God really isn't there for their good, really doesn't love them, that they should love themselves more than him. So let's continue our look at the interference of these fallen angels into the affairs of man. And the next example I want to share with you this morning is when they teamed up and attempted to completely corrupt mankind in the past. Turn to Genesis 6 with me. Genesis 6, chapter 1, sorry, chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. And it says there, And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. And they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he, is also, that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be in 120 years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them. The same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. Okay. Do you want to know where we get most of the mythological um, gods that existed in ancient Greece and Rome and, uh, and Egypt? They came from these particular, this particular events here, these events. These same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. These characters here um, became famous and continued um, to become famous and be famous and were eventually deified um, and were worshipped as gods. The sons of God here, let me clarify what this thing is saying. The sons of God here are angels. Okay, so it says the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. It says the sons of God here are the fallen angels because they shouldn't have been messing around with women. The angels either possessed men, okay, and lived through them. Do you remember when Jesus um, cast out those, (coughs) those demons from that man of the Gadarenes? They, they got into the habit of actually possessing people and living through them. And so they saw the daughters of men and they began to become involved sexually um, with them. They fell into sexual sin. And they sought to directly control people by possessing them and possibly worse, because this may be pointing to something else as well. So they possess people they live through them and they empower them i just want to remind you as well the man of the gadarenes who was possessed by those devils used to be tied up in chains and ropes could not be held he was um uh, an uncontrollable he was uncontrollable in his strength and i suspect that these men, who the Bible calls here giants, were the offspring of the union of the sons of God, probably possessing men and causing those children to be possessed from an early age, to be powerful from an early age and um, live through them. The danger here to mankind was so severe 
that God said this can't continue. He had to intervene. Otherwise, the whole of mankind would have been um, destroyed by this particular plot. Uh, let's look at the result of this demon's interfere, the, the demon's interference in the world. Look at verse 5. The result of this particular um, uh, plan of attack by these angels, by these fallen angels, resulted in this in verse 5. It says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now most of you know that the Lord wiped out the entire entirety of mankind with a flood, um, and saved just Noah, or only Noah and his family. Now he didn't. the 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 ark was open to everyone to come on board, uh, and Noah preached for many many years. And the Bible calls him a preacher of righteousness, to to actually come into the ark and be saved. Yet none chose to believe. the The world was so wicked that none of them actually chose to go into the ark and be saved. So the whole world, after one year of being on the waters, the world being covered with water, the ark lands back on the earth, and the whole world is eight people in total. There's Noah and his wife, and there are his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Japheth with their wives. The second thing we've just noticed that where, where the devils have and the demons have interfered in the affairs of mankind. Let's continue. Turn to Genesis chapter 10, verse 6 with me. And we'll see what happened after they landed and they got off the ark. Genesis chapter 10, verse 6 says, And the sons of Ham, Cush, Mizraim, and Phut, and Canaan. Okay, now just just bear that in mind. Okay, so one of so Noah had three sons: Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Everyone in the world is descended from one of those one of those three. Okay. Now Ham, one of his sons, has four sons: Cush, Mizraim, Phut, and Canaan. Look at verse eight. And Cush begat Nimrod. And he, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. You know something? <clears throat> the very first time in the Bible that we read of a kingdom or a king is here. And it's related to this particular person called Nimrod, the first ruler of a kingdom. And the kingdom was, look at the first one, Babel. Yes, this is the same place where the Tower of Babel was built. It is the same place that God confused their languages and people separated from that point. Babel is the foundation of what later became known as Babylon. 
the empire. Now, look at what they're doing. Nimrod becomes a king, proclaims himself to be king, starts to plant uh, kingdoms, and he's considered a mighty hunter. Um, I don't think he was hunting rabbits, to be honest with you. How long did it take them to get to this specific, this point where someone proclaims himself to be king and wants to rule the entire world? Well, look how many, how many uh, uh, generations it took. Ham came off the ark. He had a son called Cush and he had a son called Nimrod. Within two generations, Nimrod is calling himself king and a mighty hunter before God. Who do you, do you think may have inspired Nimrod to be a mighty hunter? Who do you think may have inspired Nimrod to want to rule the entire world? Maybe the same devils that caused there to be giants in the land before the flood. Their influence for domination, or their influence for the domination of mankind and rebellion against God, had not disappeared with the flood. Already they were interfering once again. Man had not changed his nature and was still easily led astray, once again by lies and false promises. Let's continue and see what happened with that. Genesis 11 verse 1 says, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there. And they said to one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Do you see the, a particular type of spirit working here? The same spirit that tempted Adam and Eve, promising that they could be gods themselves. Do you see the spirit of deception as they believe they can build a tower that's going to reach to heaven itself? Do you see the pride and the boastfulness of a people that wanted to make a name for themselves, that they didn't want to be spread around the whole earth, they wanted to stay together and be powerful? Instead of doing what God had commanded them to spread out across the entire face of the world, they said, no, 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 we're staying here. We're going to create a kingdom here and we're going to be powerful. God's not going to do this to us again. He's not going to flood us again. So we're going to make a tower that's going to reach all the way up to heaven. He won't be able to do that to us again. Who do you think was behind this type of spirit? Maybe the ones who wanted mankind to be together so they could control them more easily. And the Bible says that God ruined their plans by confusing their languages. And men then had to naturally separate themselves because they couldn't understand each other around all around the world. And that's the reason we have so many different languages in the world today. Had they stopped meddling in the affairs of men? No. Since that time, the devils have been hard at work trying to create always a one world empire. Over and over and over again, they have inspired many great empires over time, trying to, trying to control and dominate the entire world, enabling men to become great rulers. The prophet Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar uh, 
because of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And Nebuchadnezzar was the king or the emperor of Babylon, the empire, that he was the head of the greatest empire the world had ever seen. But that after his empire, that the Medes and the Persians would come. And then the Greeks would come. Remember Alexander the Great? Yes. And then the Roman Empire under the Caesars would come. In modern times, we have seen the attempt of men to revive these empires. Men such as Napoleon, who wanted to conquer the entire uh, uh, entire Europe and be the emperor. He actually proclaimed himself to be emperor. There was another fellow called Hitler who came a bit later who wanted to control once again, not just all of Europe, but probably would have wanted to control the entire world and be the ruler. And then there was a fellow called Stalin who managed to kill tens of millions of his own people for world domination and managed to take up many other countries and probably was continuing to grow if he wasn't stopped by an opposing power in the US. The same spirit exists today. But what about these men? Well, there is a power behind these men. Behind many of these men are angelic beings inspiring and seeking to control mankind. Let me, let me share another example with you. When God sent the angel Gabriel to deliver a message to Daniel the prophet, that's the Daniel in the Bible, um, who was living in Persia during uh, Judah's exile here, um, yes, it's the same angel Gabriel that brought the message to um, Mary and Joseph about the birth of Jesus. He said this to Daniel. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 10, verses 12 to 14. So Gabriel, the angel, is sent to Daniel to give him a message, to share a prophecy with him that Daniel was supposed to record down. And listen to Gabriel, an angel's words uh, about his journey to Daniel. In Daniel 10, verse 12, it says, Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. Verse 13, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. So let's get this straight. The prince of Persia, the prince of the kingdom of Persia, it says there in verse 13, was able to resist the angel Gabriel for 21 days. And it was only until Michael, yes, that's Michael the archangel, that he calls you one of the chief princes, came to help, did he get through? Um, This prince of Persia is not a person. A person cannot stop an angel. A person can't even see an angel, let alone try to stop them. So who is this prince of Persia, prince of the kingdom of Persia? Well, he is an angel who was opposed to God's angels, Gabriel and Michael. Why does Gabriel call him the prince of Persia? Because he was the power behind the throne, the unseen ruler of the kingdom that was, who was really calling the shots behind. 
Look at verse 20. Daniel 10, 20 says, Then said he, Knowest thou wherefore I am come unto thee? And now will I return, this is the angel Gabriel again, now will return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth. And there is none that holdeth with me in these things, but Michael, your prince. Now, look at what it says. He says, when I'm finished with you, I'm going to go back and fight again with the prince of Persia. And when I'm gone forth, which I suggest means he's, when he's defeated the prince of Persia, guess who's going to come? The prince of, it's spelled Grisha, the prince of Greece will come. Which is a, the, the next world power that came after Persia? Well, it was Greece. Greece became the world power after that. And it was inspired by a man called Alexander the Great, who conquered most of the known world by a very, very young age. But do you see the nature of these ruling angels that have manipulated mankind from the very beginning? After the Persian Empire came the Greek Empire, and after the Greek Empire came the Roman Empire. And there are plenty of other references in the Bible if you look out for them concerning these things. Do angels such as these still manipulate the rulers? of the world today? Yes, 100% they do. That's why the Bible tells in Ephesians, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers enthroned in high places. They're still on. They're still there. They're still messing things around. They're still trying to get one world government in place with one ruler in place. Their culmination will be when they create a one world empire again um, and the ascension of this beast from the bottomless pit will be completely associated with it. He is going to be the one who wants to rule all things. Why? Because this angel was one of the worst ones and he was eventually thrown into the bottomless pit. Why is it important? Why does this beast who defeats these two witnesses, why am I relating him to these, this meddling of these uh, angelic beings from the beginning? Because the beast is a fallen angel who will rise again to power in the final world empire. This is the one who will be the power behind this empire, behind the final empire before Jesus returns. This is the one who makes war against the two witnesses and overcomes them. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 9, verses 2, where we are introduced to this warring angel, to this uh, devilish being, um, when he is introduced as the one who comes up from the bottomless pit. Revelation chapter 9, verse 2 says, And he opened up the, or opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, and as the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. So the, the, the bottomless pit is opened, and smoke comes out of this thing. Verse 11 then says, For the ones that came out, and they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. Okay, so 
a ton of these angels have been cast out or, or released from the bottomless pit. They've got one who was greater than all of them that have been cast in there. And his name is Abaddon or Apollyon. <clears throat> now in verse, now in chapter 13, we see the description of an empire that arises. An empire with seven heads, which represents seven kingdoms or kings. Um, a, a devil um, would, who would rule through this one king. And when he died, would continue to rule through the following king. So let's, let's, let's have a look at this beast, okay, which is epitomized as the ruler of the, this particular kingdom, this evil political system uh, that the devil's behind. Um, and you'll notice that in this particular passage, where it refers to the dragon, that dragon is the devil. Okay, so the, dra- the, the devil is often referred to as a dragon or a serpent. So let's have a look and see what Revelation 13 says. So we've got Abaddon or Apollyon, which has come out of the bottomless pit. Now we see in chapter 13 the rise of an, of a, uh, of an empire. In Revelation 13.1, it says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the, dra- and, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. So the dragon, the devil, gives the power, the seat, and the authority. So we see this kingdom rise up from the sea. The sea is a picture of the tumultuous Gentile world, which has seven heads, or seven kings and ten horns. Now, let's not get too bogged down with the imagery of all the different animals in here because what that's simply telling us is what they're like as kingdoms, what they, the, the way they sort of behave, okay? Um, it's pictured in those, in those animals. But behind them all, behind this beast, this, so there's a beast which is a kingdom and then there is also the beast which is the king at the same time. So behind this beast and these rulers um, is a dragon, is a devil, who gives the power, the seat, and the authority. Verse 3 then says, And I saw one of the heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Okay, so out of the seven kings, one of them is, is um, wounded, and then all the world wanders after this particular beast, this, this, this particular head. Um, it seems to be um, a miraculous survival. It seems that this, this particular king survives miraculously and all the world says, wow, look at that. This is one of the kings, which should make you start thinking. Who all the world then goes wandering after and worshipping because he seems to be indestructible. Does that sound like a bit like a resurrection to you? Um, well, maybe because it's supposed to be. Why would they wander after the beast? Why would they be so enthralled and, 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 uh, and, um, and excited by him? Well, it looks as if he looks as if he's risen from the dead. It seems like someone wants to look like Jesus Christ himself. 
Now let's look at verse 4. Now let's look at how long this beast is around after his apparent resurrection, after he apparently miraculously survives this deadly wound. Okay, look at what it says in verse 4. And they worshipped the dragon, that's the devil, which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. Did you see that? Who is able to make war with him? What does the Bible say that he does, that the beast who rises from the bottomless pit does with the two witnesses? He says he makes war against them and overcomes them. Not even the two witnesses can overcome him by the looks of it. So how long does this being speak blasphemies? 42 months. By coincidence, exactly the same time the two witnesses are there. But can we be sure that this beast is the same one that rose from the bottomless pit and not some other one? Well, the wonderful thing about scripture is that it often explains itself. Um, and we're going to look at that now in, in chapter 17. But before we read this passage in chapter 17, so if you want to start turning there with me, um, I want to remind you of what I shared with you last week. That many of the world's religions are waiting or expecting a Messiah who will unite them all together in one religion, in one belief system. The Bible calls this the woman, okay, or the whore of Babylon in this in this passage. So where you see where you see a woman mentioned here, it's speaking of a false religious system who will be carried or who will be together with a demonic political system which promotes it. The political and religious religion are united together as one, with one ruler and one antichrist or false messiah who will be worshipped by the people in the world, who he himself worships Satan, because Satan is the ultimate power behind that evil. So let's see what the Bible says about this beast with seven heads and ten horns. In Revelation 17, verse 7, And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. There we go again. So it's the same one it's talking about, which is this kingdom, which has the wound on its head and, uh, and which survives. Verse 8 says, The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. Look at that. And go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And here is the mind that hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth, and there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space or a short time, and the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth. And is of the seventh, seven, and goeth into perdition. Now, hang on a sec. This all looks a little bit complicated, but it's actually not that complicated. The Bible tells us that it speaks of a kingdom that will rise or come up or rise up in the end. It is the same one that has seven heads and ten horns. Okay, um, and it says it describes this beast. It says that he comes up from the 
This particular beast, which is one of the heads, comes up out of the bottomless pit. And furthermore, it describes him in verse 8 as being the one, notice what it says, who was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and then go to destruction. It calls it perdition, the word perdition. Well, that means the destruction or judgment. Notice it says, they shall wonder when they behold the beast who was and is not and yet is. What they're wondering is, is at that miraculous survival. They're looking at him and saying, oh, wow, he came back from the dead. That particular person there. And it says that this beast is part of seven, seven heads or seven kings. And the reason that this beast was is because he once used to roam the earth and was involved in ruling over men in the past through kings like Nimrod. But it says that he is now not. So when the Apostle John was writing these words, when he saw this vision, it says he is not. He was, but he is not. And he still is not. You know why he is not? Because he is stuck in a bottomless pit. He is not at the moment. He is not around. He is locked up. He can't do anything. But then, it says, he will come again. He will rise up out of the bottomless pit. He will ascend and he will be on the earth again. So, this beast comes back. He's, he's the, going to rule this, this multi-headed kingdom, which has seven heads, okay? Um, and it says that he is the one who was and is, uh, sorry, who was and is not and yet shall be. And it says that there are seven mountains upon which this beast sits. Seven mountains. Now, I don't know, I've got an Italian background, and I know that the Roman Empire was built on seven hills or seven mountains. So the picture here is the Roman Empire, that the seven mountains represents a revived Roman Empire. And the woman will be empowered by this empire in the end. One that will revive the power, the authority, and the oppression that was experienced by believers under the Roman Empire. Do you remember what the for the first 300 years, the Roman Empire dealt very treacherously with Christians. It threw them to lions. It imprisoned them. It did all sorts of nasty stuff to believers. Okay, It was the, it was the broadest empire the world has ever known. Um, and the Bible says that it was represented by the two legs of iron, if you uh, read that passage in uh, Daniel. Um, and we're waiting for that empire to be revived in a slightly different way, but still the same type of spirit that was there. Now I want you to pay very close attention here. Okay? Um, I want you to pay very close attention so that you this thing knits together, hopefully, for you. The seven kings that are mentioned here are not human kings, but they are. They are kings from the point of view that a particular devil rules through. They're really angelic beings who possess and empower certain human beings or certain human beings or human kings. Do you remember once again, let me go back quickly to Gabriel and what he said to Daniel. 
he says, now I'll return to fight the prince of Persia. Was there a king in Persia? Yes, there was. There was a human king in Persia, but there was a prince of Persia who was a devil behind that king. And then he says, and then Gabriel says, when I'm gone forth, lo, the prince of Grisha will come. So Grisha was another devil. When Gabriel and Michael defeated the prince of Persia, that particular king and his kingdom, okay, that particular angel, fallen angel and his kingdom, another angel would come up who would inspire then the Greek kingdom or the, or the empire to arise. Another angel, another king. See how there are seven kings? There is, there, they are represented by particular angelic beings. So Babylon, for instance, um, had King Nebuchadnezzar. But after King Nebuchadnezzar, who was a, a real person, there were a number of kings after him. Did Babylon fall straight after Nebuchadnezzar? No, it didn't. Nebuchadnezzar was the first and the greatest. But then after him, that same angel was continuing to rule through that line of kings until he was defeated. And then another empire rose up, the Persian Empire. When that angel ruled through a number of kings, then another, and then he was defeated. Another angel came up and caused the Greek Empire and then the Roman Empire. Now it says here, it says that five, in look at verse 10, it says in verse 10 of Revelation chapter 17, there are seven kings, five are fallen and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven and goeth into perdition. Five demons, five devils have already fallen. You notice how it says, and there are seven kings and five are fallen. Notice how it doesn't say five have died. It says five are fallen. It's, they fell because they fell in battle. People don't fall, people die. One was ruling in John's day then. It says that there were, there were seven, five have gone, come and gone. And one is, which was in John's day when he was writing that particular uh, letter, okay? When he was writing Revelation some 2,000 years ago. And then it says, the seventh comes, or still to come, in the end for a short time. Yes, a very short time. Why a short time? Because the person he inhabits will be mortally wounded. And at that time, the king of the bottomless pit will be released to make way. And he'll make way for this terrible angel. The seventh one um, will depart to make way for this eighth. And I want you to pay very close attention. Notice how it says in that final verse 11, it says, And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth. Well, hang on a sec, he's the eighth, but there are only seven. It says he is of the seven and goeth into perdition. How can he be of the seven? Well, he's been playing this game before. He's played this, this particular uh, hand before. He ruled at a previous time through another kingdom. And then he was thrown, he was defeated, he was thrown into the bottomless pit. Now he's risen up and he, because it seems as if he's the worst one of them all, the final one, the seventh one, makes way for him, the eighth. And I think 
my guess would be that he is the one who ruled through Nimrod, through the very first one that eventually became the, the Babylonian Empire and then caused the other empires. Why? Because the accounts of Nimrod, even outside uh, other sources in history, say that his mother and his wife, by the way, uh, Semiramis, also became known as Ishtar and Isis. Nimrod became known as many, the names of many other gods. Nimrod was probably also known as, in Egypt, as Osiris. And already played a role in, and already had a, played a particular story about uh, when he died, his mother promoted him as a god and said that he would rise again every year during the winter solstice. Do you wonder why most ancient buildings in the world, such as pyramids, um, and places like Stonehenge were, Stonehenge were built in the first place? Well, one is they were following the tradition of the first tower that was built, the Tower of Babel. The second, and the reason they, they celebrate the winter solstice, is they're celebrating the birth of Nimrod again, the rising of Nimrod. See, there's a picture here. That continues to, if you look through the deities of the ancient cultures, whether they were Persian or Babylonian or Assyrian or, um, or Greek or Roman, they all had deities that kept on coming back year after year after year. Egypt was the same. And you also also have a female or a woman that gives birth to a, to a child and that child becomes uh, the actual king who keeps on coming back over and over again. Revelation. And the reason I think it's Nimrod as well, the reason I think that this angel, this beast, the, this uh, Abaddon who rises up is the same one who ruled through Nimrod is because it says in Revelation chapter 14 verse 8, now this is right at the end, it says, and there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of fornication. So I think Babylon at the end is, uh, is likened to this final kingdom, and what, it's, what it's called, this final kingdom, is going to be ruled by an antichrist, the person, a, a figurative, a, a literal person like, like me, okay, whom the beast will rule through when he rises from the bottomless pit, when he ascends from the bottomless pit, and seek to rule the world a second time. He will be the one that the two witnesses testify against. But in the end, he will overcome them. Now, what does this mean for us today? The Bible says that the people of the world shall wonder after him. Because he seems to be like Christ to them. He will, he will behave like a lamb. Actually, what's funny enough is that during seven years, the first three and a half, he behaves like a lamb. He, becomes like a, he behaves like a really nice person looking for peace. The second half of the year, he, comes, he, he rules like a lion. He's trying to picture himself like Jesus Christ. He seems to try to want to do the same things as Jesus Christ. And all the world will be fooled. All the religions of the world will look to him and they'll say, that's our Messiah too. He is saying what we, he was the one that we're looking forward to. And instead, it will be this beast that has risen up from the bottomless pit who's going to 
possess that particular person, make it look as if he's risen again from the, from the dead and will deceive the entire world. Now, 2 Thessalonians says, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And verse 11 says in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What's the strong delusion that they should believe a lie? That they will believe that this being, this person who supposedly miraculously comes back to life, is actually Jesus. And they will not believe in the real Jesus, but they will believe in a fake Jesus, an antichrist, a false messiah, a person indwelt by an angel that inspired man to rebel against God from the very beginning. People will believe a lie because of Satan's power and deception. The reason we have been given this information beforehand is to help us share these truths with other people. We should know the Bible well enough that we should not be fooled by false messiahs or antichrists or, or false uh, prophets when they start pushing false belief systems upon us. But we must be vigilant because there will come a time when people will just not listen and they will choose to believe a lie and God will hand them over to that lie. So our challenge is to speak the truth today. But before you can speak the truth, you need to know the truth. You need to, as I've shared with you already, to know how to handle the word of God, to know how to use it, to know how to, how to interpret it, to know how to rightly divide it, because the devil will, comes against us every day to stop us from sharing these truths, to stop us living these truths, to try and deceive us into falling into sin as well. But there will come a day and we won't be here. There will come a day when we won't be here and the Antichrist will arise. We have a job to do, my brothers and sisters, and that's to share the truth with people in the world, to tell them that there is, there are principalities and powers who seek to dominate the world and to keep them in darkness. Our job is to shine that light, to be the lights of the world. So let's be those lights. Let's share the truth. And let's know the word of God and trust it for our lives that we might glorify God in all things we do. God bless you. Thank you and have a wonderful week.